On this, our second episode of Forgotten Gems, the show where we look at some film festival favorites that initially got a lot of attention but have since either fallen into obscurity or fallen out of favor, we take a look at Denis Villeneuve's August 32nd on Earth from 1998. We're going to take a look, relitigate, and decide if we should have remembered this one or not. My name is Liam O'Donnell, and I am one of your co-hosts here at Cinema Smorgasbord and the host forgotten gems joining me is my lackey my sidekick my beta my cuck doug tilly did you forget my name <laughs> no but i couldn't decide what was a good dramatic pause or not i was like keep it hold it more dramatic more pause and then i was like oh no it's been too long it's such a serious intro for what is going to be a very goofy show generally, I think, Liam. But yeah, I'm really excited because one of the great things about this uh, particular show on the Cinema Smorgasbord Network is that we get to look at these films that I remember in the late 90s hearing about. Uh, and maybe in this case, like they were a launching point for a very successful career. But a movie that since then, boy, it just feels like nobody is talking about it anymore. And that is August 32nd on Earth. From Denis Villeneuve, which is, that's a much better pronunciation of his name than the one that you did. What did I say? I thought that's what I said. I think you said, Denise Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> Denis Villeneuve. Well, I uh, think, I, well, there goes our French contingent of our listeners. Ah, uh, come on, guys. Look, just think of all the uh, Latinx things you've mispronounced, because you must have. Uh, and then uh, uh, just think of this as Kay? karma. <laughs> This is just karma for all the ways that you've uh, butchered my ancestry. So I'm just getting revenge. You know, that's it's good. Are you uh, talking to me or our listeners? Everyone. All of you. <laughs> you all owe me blood. And this is how I'll extract it. By mispronouncing f- French things. Plus, it's French Canadian, too. It's not even real. Come on. Honestly, uh, look, that, that I know that you're mocking French Canada right now, which I'm going to defend <laughs> their honor a little bit. But do you, please do you do, know please that, do. that the Canada, uh, sorry, the French spoken in uh, Quebec, in Quebec, here in Canada, is a different French than is spoken in France, and that there is a, I don't know if it's competition would be the right word, but my understanding is that in France, they think of the the French spoken in Quebec as being sort of lower quality or uh, mm-hmm. lower class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would love to hammer on that, like any chance I can get to disrespect Canada, you know I like to take it, but the reality is, um, I'm pretty sure uh, the folks in Espana look as uh, uh, witheringly upon the various permutations of their mother tongue among Latin America. So I don't exactly have a foot to stand on, especially being of uh, Puerto Rican descent, because uh, Puerto Ricans are known to speak Spanish so quickly and without a care for enunciation that many other Spanish speakers have no idea what we're saying. I'm using we loosely here, as I only know the very least amount of Spanish I could possibly know. It's it's well, it's ridiculous how little Spanish Liam, it's exciting because we're going to do the rest of this episode in Spanish because I took two classes in university in it. And, you know, I, I've been meaning to get back into it. And you, I, frankly, I think your country should be a bilingual country, mm, just mm. like my country is. Mm. Uh, and why not uh, celebrate the Spanish mm. that you do know? I mean, I say que tiempo. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, well, you know, I'm really excited we're covering uh, this film, not just because of my interest in uh, the films of villain. I already lost the pronunciation. 
Denny Villeneuve. Villeneuve. So Villeneuve, I'm okay with. It's the adding the V on the end that I got to work mm-hmm. on. Um, well. So I'm interested in him as director anyway, but I'm particularly excited that I think this is the first Canadian film we've covered, right? Is that this true? Might be one of the only Canadian movies that you and I have ever podcasted about. Wow. Well, you know, I, you're here. I'm going to exploit your background as a Canadian. And can you tell us a little bit about the films of Canada besides the obvious Curtains and Pin, the only Canadian <laughs> movies worthwhile that I know of? Admittedly, about 90% of the movies that come out of Canada have to do with medical dummies in some capacity. Um, <laughs> Okay, so it all started with Nanook of the North back in 1922. Stop, no, just... stop. <laughs> uh, I, I think he, I am not necessarily the right person to do a full history of the films of Canada, but I do have to say I have a particular interest in the Canadian film industry. And, uh, and, and while there are some big names, and yes, I mean big names, that have come out of that, including Denis Villeneuve, who, I mean, he is as a mainstream a director at this point as you can possibly be. His Dune adaptation is, I think, going to be a pretty big movie if it ever comes out. Um, but, you know, names like David Cronenberg, names like Adam O'Goyan are names that I think at least film fans know fairly well. But there are other directors that maybe fly under the radar a little bit that uh, don't get as much attention. And we're not going to go through those right now. I'm hoping that maybe we can actually look at some of those films in the future on Forgotten Gems. But, you know, directors like Bruce McDonald, who uh, I think a lot of listeners of this might know from Pontypool, but I'm a huge fan of his career. Um, He has a movie called Highway 61 that I think is really worthwhile, a movie called Roadkill. And, of course, he directed Hardcore Logo, which is one of my favorite movies, though, Liam. I think, am am I right that you've never seen Hardcore Logo? I have never seen it. I don't even know about it. I mean, you're a punk. So it's very surprising to me that one of the punkest mm. movies, Hardcore Logo, huh. is something that you mm. have not seen and appreciated. I mean, I know you're lying right now because the punkest movie is Suburbia by uh, uh, Penelope, Penelope Spheris. Spheris. No American can make the punkiest movie. I'm going to disagree so hard <laughs> on that, especially coming from Canada, which like without DOA, you basically have nothing. So. Well, we do have Hardcore Logo, the punkest movie ever made. Uh, Maybe that's going a little bit too far. But it it is a movie that I love. It's actually probably my favorite Canadian movie. Uh, And it's one that, because it does have a very particular Canadian attitude and look about it that I think that it a lot of people just haven't discovered it. it we're in a really weird place here in Canada because you think that Canadian movies would travel fairly well across the border to the US but they just don't there's something very specific about them and I like that I like the idea that Canadian directors want to make movies about Canadian issues about Canadian things that they care about but it does mean that our industry seems to be really limited and it only kind of expands when some of these directors um, make like a critical darling, like August 32nd on Earth, and then that that travels enough for them to get a Hollywood opportunity. And it's, it's a little bit sad to me. I think we get a little bit more attention from our genre directors, people like Jason Eisner, people like Stephen Kostowski, names like the Soska sisters, you know, people who have are able to make movies on smaller budgets that can appeal more internationally. Well, I'm sure it doesn't help that, uh, you know, a director like Villeneuve, uh, you know, once he gets attention, right, he's making films that are not specifically Canadian movies. You know, Prisoners, Sicario, Arrival, Blade Runner 2049. These are not Canadian films, even if his uh, background is in Canada. You know what I'm saying? So, like, it's not like he's making 
a Sicario, and that is a Canadian film that we just happen to know about here. It's like if you get to a certain level as a Canadian filmmaker, at one level, at what point are you just going to be actually an American filmmaker? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, the the career that I most uh, connect with Denis Villeneuve is Francois Girard, who made a film called uh, 32 Short Films about Glenn Gould back in 1993, which was an international favorite. And he used that to make his next movie, The Red Violin, which has Samuel L. Jackson in it. And it looked like it was an attempt to make a sort of a more mainstream work, a work that might have kind of broader appeal. And, you know, it, it was well received at the time, but he never really reached the, that kind of Hollywood height because I think his sensibilities just weren't built around that. And that's fine, you know, and he still has, you know, he's, he's been a very successful director and I like his movies quite a bit. But Denis Villeneuve, there was something in him that wanted to make mass entertainment, which is what makes this particular movie so interesting because it is not the kind of movie that would appeal to a mass a mass uh, uh, mainstream audience at all. Well, we're going to get into that, uh, how we felt about the film, how what we think this sort of connects to uh, his career as a director and even where the film came from uh, in a moment here. But first, let's take a quick... Young Simone is involved in a near-fatal car crash, and as she questions her mortality, she also decides to have a baby. Her candidate for a father is her best friend, Philippe, who happens to be seeing someone. He agrees as long as it's in a desert, and the closest desert is in Salt Lake City. The trip teaches many lessons about love, solitude, and self-discovery. That's right. It's 1998, August 32nd on Earth. Directed by Denis Villeneuve, <laughs> who you might know from such films as Sicario, Arrival, Blade Runner 2049, and the upcoming Dune. Also written by Denis Villeneuve. It played at the Cannes Film Festival in 1998 and was a nominee for the uh, Uns- uh, Certain Regard Award. Uncertain Regard. <laughs> is that like French? <laughs> Do I need to say it, in French? it is a French award. I'm not going to say it in French. I'm not, I'm not interested in that. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Alexis Martin won Best Actor at the uh, Jutra Awards. Uh, Denis Villeneuve was nominated for Best Director um, at those awards and it was also a nominee for Best Performance for uh, Pascal Boussieres. I don't know how to say that. I think that's pretty good. Okay. She plays uh, Simone in the movie. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. So she, we should she, mention. She plays Simone uh, Serge Thurlot. Oh boy. <laughs> I don't know what that I don't know what that. How to say that? How do you say that? No, well, it doesn't matter. You're thinking of Alexis Martin, who plays Philippe. <laughs> He's the other lead. I was going to go with just with the top four names. That's what I always the, do. The, these uh, are listed in order of people appearing in the movie. So that third All person right. is the doctor All she sees right. at the beginning. All so right. you don't want to do that. All right. Alexis Martin plays Philippe. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. I think before you say the list, you should explain what the Jutra Awards are. <laughs> Doug, can you tell us what the Jutra Awards are? Well, the Jutra Awards are sort of like Quebec's uh, Academy Awards. Uh, it's a it's a Canadian film award that's about mainly francophone feature films. It used to be called the it used to be called the Jutra Awards, but now it's called the Prix Iris uh, because the original award was named after Claude Jutra, an influential Quebec 
film director, but uh, there was allegations that he had sexually abused children, so they had to change the name of it. Okay. Yeah, pretty dark. Yeah, very dark. I don't know why you had to share that with the audience. It's that's kind of a bummer. Well, maybe just saying it was nominated <laughs> for a bunch of Jutra awards with the expectation that anybody would know what the fuck that is might be. A, a, I, I'm trying to add information as opposed <laughs> to take it away. <laughs> <laughs> you did give an explanation on here about what what this was, but you didn't actually say what it was in the, at the same time. So that was really frustrating. What are you talking about? At I was bottom. reading directly from the explanation. No, but you didn't say. I just saw this pre pre. I don't know how to say that. The pre iris. The pre iris. Canadian Film Award, and it said it was known as the Jutra Award. I thought you could put two and two together. That's Liam the O'Donnell. third. That's a third sentence in. Who has time to read three sentences? Oh, in? Dear God. <laughs> as we said already, uh, Pascal Boussieres stars as Simone. Alexis Martin stars as Philippe, and uh, I'm assuming uh, Serge. Thorold, is that the is that the taxi driver? No, I don't believe that is. It might be because there's also an automobilist in Salt Lake Salt City. Salt Lake City, Lee Fobert. So, the, uh, well, we'll get into it. But uh, I don't know who Lee Fobert is, but that person looks very familiar to me when we were watching uh, the film. I, I, he's been in. He's done a bunch of work. I think he was in an episode of Touched by an Angel. <laughs> My wife, who was watching the movie, kind of uh, uh, by, uh, just just in and out while I was watching it. She she was. Curious as well about what this actor had done, and he she looked it up and she said, just told me that he was in Touch by an Angel because she was convinced that he was Canadian because of how he talked. Oh wow! <laughs> All right, August thirty second on Earth, nineteen ninety eight. Doug, let's start with a little just insight from you. Uh, is this a film that sort of represents a trend in uh, Quebecois filmmaking? Uh, or is this like its own sort of interesting thing? Because I was, from a stylistic standpoint, a little confused by this movie, even as I was delighted and entertained. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily part of a trend, uh, at least not that I'm particularly aware of, though I have to say, with my love of Canadian films, there is a lot of very Quebecois-specific films and filmmaking that I just have not seen, and that are very kind of culturally specific to Quebec, which is great, right? I mean, I love the idea that that it might take a little bit more to work out some of those cultural references. Here, I don't think that that's as much of an issue, particularly because a good chunk of this movie actually takes place in the U.S., though I think it does have uh, something to do with uh, foreigners' relationships to the United States and particularly maybe a Canadian relationship to the U.S. because the people that they run into in the U.S. are not exactly the most friendly people in the world. Um, <laughs> but in terms of the the kind of filmmaking that's on display here, I think it has more to do with the French New Wave than it does with Canadian filmmaking in general. There are audible and visual references to the French New Wave. That is my understanding anyway. I do have to say that the French New Wave of the 60s and 70s is just not something that I have delved into deep enough to have as much of an understanding as I'd like to. But unfortunately, my knowledge doesn't go much further than Breathless when it comes to the French New Wave. Unfortunately, I have to agree. Um, like you said. You have to agree, unfortunately? <laughs> Can I get to what I was going to say, please? Sure, please. I'd love for you to make a point. Oh, my gosh, Doug. <laughs> Why do you have to be such a jerk off right now? <clears throat> Liam, I've been in my apartment for three weeks. <laughs> Let me put it this way. This will be less confusing for your dumbass. Ready? Unfortunately, I have to echo your sentiment of uh, 
just a just a bit of a distance between me and French New Wave films. I've seen some Agnes Varda films, uh, primarily when she passed away. I made an effort to catch some. Uh, I've definitely seen you know your Four Hundred Blows or your Breathless, but uh, digging a little bit deeper and getting more familiar with the style is a little uh, outside of my purview. I will say this film, as much as uh, I believe that there is connections and references to the french new wave it's also a very strongly 90s film in its aesthetic oh, yes. <laughs> uh it, there's just as soon as it starts i'm like whoa 1998 hello there i've missed you um th- there's something about it that that really connects to that uh and it's an interesting sort of storytelling technique here in that um the film and correct me if you think i'm wrong here the film really starts as a journey with Simone. Simone is a model. She has a uh, horrifying car wreck on the way to the airport to go to a shoot. And what we are given is a story about someone who has undergone a moment that has changed their lives. And it's only as the movie goes on that Philippe becomes an actual character and we start to understand who he is and what he's about and why his world is actually important to the story that's being told and and i just thought that storytelling technique and the dynamic tension that that creates was really compelling for me it's at its core this is sort of a romantic comedy which is a little funny to say because it is such a stark uh presentation of that and it's not really very funny but these are characters that have a long relationship with one another certainly a lot longer than philippe has with his current girlfriend uh, and the idea is that they're best friends, right? They're really close to another, and Philippe is in love with Simone, uh, though that is kind of unrequited love, and it's not something that I guess has ever been directly spoken. So when she comes to him with this proposition, the proposition is basically a no-strings-attached thing. We have sex, I get pregnant, you don't have to raise the kid, we don't, you know, basically they will then separate, um, and that's not something that I guess he finds himself capable of. Uh, and, and when he mentions the idea of, like, He'll only do it if they have sex in the desert in Utah. Uh, He's just throwing that out there as almost like a joke. And she just goes completely seriously with it and then goes to a very 1998 version of the Internet to get tickets so they can go to Utah, uh, which starts sort of their uh, the part of this movie. That's sort of this adventure that they go on together. Um, One thing that I'm still a little bit shaky on is on how seriously we're supposed to take the events after the car crash that opens the movie. This isn't like Carnival of Souls. This isn't she's walking this this purgatory or something along those lines. It's not meant to suggest necessarily that the events that we're seeing are not taking place, but there is a surrealist edge to everything that happens afterwards, uh, including dream sequences, including a really gruesome discovery that they find in the desert that you wonder how much of it we're supposed to take completely seriously or on face value it was really difficult for me there was a part of me that had to let go of an expectation i was holding which is at any moment there's going to be more indications that she is in fact dead because (laughs) the you know she's in the car she's falling asleep and then she wakes up in this accident mostly unharmed and there's some part of me that's like "Uh," or she'd be dead i mean not that you couldn't live from an accident like that but it's just more likely that your head would be crushed you know what i'm saying like there there was just an extent to which um the the circumstances themselves are slightly unbelievable and then as you said the film takes on a surrealist angle and and i kind of want to ask you about that is that meant to in some ways 
I don't know if that's just meant to be an aesthetic affectation. You know, like this is the affect of a story where we're just flying by the seat of our pants and it feels kind of strange and unpredictable. Uh, Or if there is some suggestion of like, are we even in the real world? Uh, Or is there some way in which um, undergoing this sort of experience kind of puts your life on hold? Like, I don't know, a good counterexample might be suddenly there's a global pandemic and (laughs) anywhere you could go, you get sick. And anything that occurs during that time feels like you're in some sort of living nightmare and you would do anything to wake up. Just as an example. It seems a little far-fetched, but I <laughs> please please continue. <laughs> but I do I did want to ask about your feeling about that because there was part of me that was really expecting her to be dead. There's another part of me that was thinking, um, the fact that we are in a space that is not the real world in some ways in the how it operates is just meant to represent how her world has been turned upside down. It's just a a representation of how you feel after an event like this. And then there's mm-hmm. a was another part of me that was sort of saying like. This entire film is, mm, there's something fanciful about it, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? So I was just trying to parse that out and how much that even matters as a viewer. Do I need to understand that distinction to enjoy the film? Because maybe I don't. I think even describing the movie as surreal, which I've already done, I think gives an indication of it being a little more fanciful than it actually is. Right. Uh, it's, a, it's actually, in a lot of ways, very realistic. And I think we're supposed to treat the relationships on display here as very, very realistic. However, I do think that whether you call it the shock that Simone is feeling after that car crash, whatever it has done to her mentally, and there's even a reference when she goes to the doctor, you know, that her memory isn't what it should be, it, that, that it'll take a while to recover from what she's experienced that she's been kind of knocked out of sorts and maybe locked out of alignment with the universe in some way. And that is echoed in the title of the movie itself, August 31st, sorry, August 32nd on Earth, obviously a date that doesn't exist. And then the movie is actually broken into days. It will continue August 33rd, August 34th. And as the events of the movie unfold, it's it's continuing August. It's like, it's like an endless month, just kind of how March felt in the year 2020. Um, and then at one point it just flicks back to reality and suddenly we're in September and we're into September, like September 5th. And then the plot moves forward in kind of a, a darker way for, uh, as the characters, I think, have to tangle with the reality of their situation. I think for Simone, the unreality is kind of a um, is an offshoot or a result of the crash. So she's living in this kind of fog or this fantasy that is you know, creates this thing, this this feeling that she wants to have a child, that she wants to have it with Philippe, that she wants, she's willing to just buy a ticket and go to Utah without a driver's license to, you know, do whatever she has to do to make this happen and to go on this adventure. But at some point that spell is broken and then she has to come back to reality. And then another horrific event occurs that I, I don't know if it's supposed to start that level of shock or surreality again, but it does lead to a very interesting ending, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in a little bit. Let's take a brief aside to focus a little bit on these performances because the film spends most of its time with Simone and Philippe. I mean, definitely with Simone and then eventually with Philippe. Mm -hmm. Um, What did you think of the performances from our two main folks in this film? So Pascal Boussier plays Simone. That's a really difficult performance because she's supposed to be likable but also very kind of freewheeling. She's supposed to be a model, but she's not supposed to be so overwhelmingly beautiful that like people are constantly staring at her. She's playing a really 
difficult. She's walking a really difficult line in this movie. And I think she does it really, really well. Uh, I mean, these are two really great performances. I think Philippe's, um, the, the performance of Philippe by Alexis Martin got a lot more attention, uh, I think, critically. But uh, to me, this movie doesn't work until, unless you get a very unique and very charismatic performance as Simone. And I think Pascal does a really amazing job there. I mean, we can take this as the first opportunity to correct the past here. Alexis Martin is good. This is a good performance, but I think the movie works because of her. Yeah. We spend way more time with her. Absolutely. And I get that his role is difficult because he has to be both charming and essentially a cuck. I mean, he's literally like a friend-zoned guy who never had the guts to say exactly how he felt. And in fact, is forced to admitting feelings that he's been denying himself mm-hmm. for years only because of her experience her accident forces him to accept how he feels and that's not an easy thing to play especially to play it in a way where we don't just end up thinking this dude sucks you know like there's just it would be really easy to boil his whole character down to guy who couldn't figure out how to get what he wants you know and uh that's not endearing um but in the film he is endearing actually i think he plays the role very well while still without going over a line and making him some sort of um, like what you don't want is for him to be playing a character who could never get it together enough to tell his friend how he felt feels, but somehow is also super confident, you know, and is also, you know what I mean? You could just play the wrong guy, but this is the right guy. And yet we still care about him in a way where we're pulling for him to figure his stuff out. You know, there's a great moment where he, he recognizes that the situation he's in is really screwed up. That he, you know, he's going to be cheating on his girlfriend if he does this. He has to leave and lie to his girlfriend about the fact that he has to work because he's a, a doctor in the movie. That he has to work for 24 hours, but really he's going to be going to Utah. And he stops and talks to his roommate, who he has to wake him up, basically, and ask his advice on the situation. This is something that he is struggling with, but that's a real difficult performance, right? Because, like you said, he has to remain likable while he's doing something that's really shitty, and he knows it's shitty and he is struggling with it and still doesn't know what decision to make. Um, but I think at the end of the day, he really does come off as being very real because there are elements of his character, like these unrequited feelings for a good friend. It's something that is very relatable to a lot of people, though I think a lot of that uh, friend zone aspect maybe hasn't aged as well as other aspects of this movie. Well, that's what I'm saying, is that it, in 2020, this movie shouldn't work at all. And, and yeah. you could argue that the end doesn't work uh, in some ways, um, and we'll get there. But uh, I think most of the film, it works despite the fact that this was before we all realized that the friend zone was a lie and that these men were just eventually going to become MRAs, you know? so Yeah, right. Um, I think I think the fact that he doesn't fall down that hole is just a telling for his performance. But again, part of that isn't just his performance. It's her as well, that you believe that an, I believe about this character that until she has this experience, maybe she's never even considered this other person in that way. You know what right. I mean? And, and in fact, her own thing. And, and one of the ways that I think the film is really interesting is that, the motivation for her is she's considering her mortality Mm. and she's thinking about how, what if she never gets to have a child? But it's weird how that cataclysmic moment and the way that it makes her think of her mortality obscures the chance for her to have an actual future. Right. You know what I mean? And, and granted, maybe that's not what she wants. I mean, you know, the film would have been even more interesting if she had decided that, 
this revelation from her friend soured the whole thing and now she doesn't want anything to do with him. That would have been an entirely different movie altogether and maybe even more interesting. But this revelation, by the way, comes in the form of a letter that is, is eventually read in near the end of the movie. But this letter is basically both an, I love you letter and we have to break up as friends letter because of it. And it actually has this really amusing bit where they basically split the world into pieces that they can be. So they don't ever run into each other saying that he gets to go to India and she doesn't. It's actually very good. Uh, but again, it is it is a bit difficult in 2020 to see that because how many men have written that letter uh, and only for the other person to say, well, good, just go away then. Like, I don't want... Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, this is, this is in some ways the fulfillment of the ultimate kind of um, uh, weird dude thing. And yet, it still mm-hmm. works in the context of the film. I don't think the film ever spills over from my, from, from my reading into some sort of weird misogynist Whatever you know, it. it works we should also mention, ways. by the way, Liam, that these are two people in their late twenties, right? These are not old old people. These sure, are people who sure. are, you know, the, the the fact that she feels this rush to want to have a child. I mean, she has many years that she she could still do that. But like you said, I think that facing the reality of your life and the direction it's going, it makes you want to make these large, you know, spontaneous changes. And uh, the, I think the the real surprising thing to me was that the movie ends with her still wanting to make that change. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, um, well, before we jump, I, I want to spend some time talking about the ending and, and how we feel about it. Before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the other thing I really noticed about this film, which is that uh, Villanovu's um, sort of visual language, uh, which I don't know. I don't know how much of it is present, though all of his films look very good. You know, I, I would definitely say mm-hmm. the the three that I like the most, Sicario, Arrival, and Blade Runner 2049, all are sort of visually astounding films. But this film ha- is more than just um, visually interesting. There's a lot of camera movements. There's a lot of interesting angles. There's a lot of like big decisions being made. Uh, and I was kind of wondering if you thought that all of those worked, if you liked that style, if, if it if it was ever a distraction for you from the story, how you felt about that sort of way that he filmed it. It's interesting that Villeneuve has had sort of a consistent visual style, considering that he's worked with different cinematographers. Um, but I really like that kind of stark, wide style that he has. There's two segments of this movie which involve kind of this canvas of white one is in the desert uh, a lengthy sequence in the kind of salt flats in utah and then before they head back to canada the 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 couple are stuck in a like a capsule hotel um that's supposed to be like japanese style and they're just in this white kind of futuristic room um and and there's a lot of great moments that occur in both of those locations but it really gives Villeneuve an opportunity to really show off, you know, really show off is really what I should say, right? Um, and and I don't necessarily think I found it distracting. A movie like this sort of lives and dies by a lot of that visual style because mm-hmm. there isn't a lot of plot happening. While we were watching it, while my wife and I were watching it, there is a part, so they're wandering. The idea is they've gone to the desert to have sex, but it's just flat. There's nowhere to do it. They've been brought by this shady taxi driver. Um, and the taxi driver ends up abandoning them, and they have to go for this long walk basically back to, quote-unquote, humanity. And during that walk, she, uh, Simone, she has to use the bathroom, and when she does, she finds a body, a burnt body with a can of gasoline next to it. Um, And it's this horrific, 
horrible moment. And it's really stark because there isn't a lot of that kind of really kind of widescreen drama that has occurred up to this point. But I think my wife thought, and, and myself to a point thought, oh, this is going to be a turning point in the movie. This is going to be something that they're going to latch onto, and it's going to have this mystery element, and maybe we're going to have to like find out who the killers are, or maybe they'll run into the killers. But that's that's not what this movie is, right? That is just kind of a side quest in what is going on in regards to it. And I'm still kind of struggling with what the meaning of that is. It's something that's obviously very disturbing, and maybe it kind of reinforces that that feeling of, of impermanence that Simone is already feeling uh, in regards to their trip there. But uh, in terms of, of kind of the the memorable images that come from this movie, I think of those two stark locations and this horrific burnt body that you see. I think that the constant reminder here is both of danger and of impermanence, you know? Hmm. And um, there is a... To me, there's an inherent clash between these two characters that the film is working out the whole time, which is that um, he's never had the guts to tell her how he feels because he is unwilling to put her their friendship in danger, so to speak. Right. You know, as real or unreal as that is, you know, we could talk about that perception and how that's affected people's relationships, whatever. I'm not a relationship counselor, but I know a lot of people who would look at that scenario and say, well, that's just made up because the reality of your friendship is your feelings and pretending that they don't exist. is just a lie, whatever. That's not really as important to me as the idea that like he has gone out of his way to deny who he is or how, what he's feeling in order to maintain the status quo. And now she has undergone a moment that reminds her she doesn't have time to waste now, right. is her reaction entirely rational? Maybe not, but that's not really what's important. It's that he is invested in stasis, and she is now invested in transformation. And there are constant reminders about that need for some new thing, some new way of being. Uh, what, again, that starts with the accident, but the body probably enforces that for her even more. Um, and I don't know what effect it kind of has on him. I haven't really worked that out. But then... Um, him getting attacked so i think we talked about this but just to be clear for listeners who haven't seen the film at a moment where he she has read the letter she has asked him to come over i think she's like this is it like this is the big whatever he is attacked he's beaten and he is uh put into a coma um this is one more reminder to her of impermanence. And that's yeah, why I, I tend to focus on the movie on her arc. And I think, I think that's exactly the right perspective to take. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so to me, it's like, I'm actually then not surprised by the ending, which we can get to here right now, if you want, um, in that all film long, she is, even though things are not quite clicking for what she thinks it should be, she's reminded of the ways that, Life is not that. So there, you know, I'm not a big fan of platitudes, y'all. Like I, I don't want to sit here and, <laughs> and sell you some some bullshit. But the simple reality, and you're probably feeling it right now, as you're huddled in your home trying not to get death flu, is that you know life is precious and that it goes away pretty easily, constantly, all the time. It's going away, and that there's far less of it than there is more of it. And I think that's what she's realizing over and over again is that. You can't just, you know, pretend like you don't want what you want, you know. And really, 
for the entirety of their six-year friendship, that's kind of what Philippe has done, that he's had one thing that he wanted. He never took the shot. I'm sure he felt very noble doing that in a lot of ways and very much like he was being a good guy. But, you know, maybe he wasn't. Maybe if he had taken a chance, this would have always been her response. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't think the I mean, film I do think there is. That. I think there is some, like, there is some talk about the relationships that they've had in the past. I think she even mentions that she's never had a relationship longer than a few months. There's also the possibility that Philippe thinks, well, I have all the time in the world. We're still young, right? And maybe there's an opportunity to do this later, though there's never any suggestion that this is something that he's ever looking towards doing. This is just a situation that forced him, kind of forced his hand, I guess, to confront a lot of those emotions that he already was mixed up in when it came to her. And so at, at the very end, she goes to see him in a coma, and she, you know, tells him that they're still going to have a baby, that, that, that you know, his coma is not going to keep them from procreating. Hey, Doug. Uh-huh. What would you think of that ending? That's a... So she comes into the, the hospital room and she lies to the nurse and says that she's his girlfriend, which is whatever. I mean, you know, she just wants to spend some time with him. The nurse leaves and she goes over and locks the door. And at that point you know that something's going to happen. And in my mind, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. And I still I still feel that pretty strongly. I mean, obviously, what happens here is not cool. It is sexual assault. Even if he was, you know, pretty willing to do this before, this is not really the same thing. And it is where the movie takes a turn regarding, you know, how literal are we supposed to take this? Now, this coma that he's in, there is a suggestion that he could wake up from it, but that he might not. And maybe that it's a strong li- like likelihood that he'll never wake up. So in that case, I mean, the morality, I guess, might be up to the individual. It still seems pretty wrong to me. But in terms of Simone coming to her logical conclusion of what everything has been leading to at that point, I felt pretty conflicted about it. I'd like to hear other responses to it. I'm curious about your own response, Liam, because it's not that it felt hollow to me. In the end, it kind of felt like what the whole movie was building towards to one extent or another. But it also felt kind of, for a movie that was ostensibly a romantic comedy, it felt like a really kind of dark and distressing ending. Yeah, but the whole movie is dark and distressing as much as it's not funny. You know, like, I, I I don't know that the whole movie isn't meant to be a mean joke. You know, that that, you know, a woman has this traumatic experience, suddenly realizes that her life is more than, you know, whatever it is she's been doing with it. And so she just turns to her friend who she loves to have a baby because, of course, she just wants it to be with her closest friend. And she doesn't need to mess with messy stuff like love and feelings. And then bada bing, bada boom, turns out he's in love with her and he can't have sex with her because he's in love with her. And. I'm not convinced it has anything to do with his ex, even though, or with his girlfriend, even though he, that seems to be in the movie. I think he's, it's really just about his feelings that to casually impregnate her in some ways disrespects how he feels about her because he actually loves her. And then the film, that much more, is like, oh, turns out she's down too. This is actually great. Now they're going to be together. And then throws our, our, drunk French friends in the mix who beat him up for no reason in the weirdest of circumstances in a scene that is bordering on Yodorowsky weird. 
That it's scene, ludicrous. I mean, it is a very strange scene. It does not make a single ounce of sense to the point where I wouldn't criticize it. I feel like no scene would make that little sense unless you meant it to not all make sense. If that's- it's exactly as random as some of the craziest random things that happen in real life sometimes. So even outside of the surrealistic aspect of it, shit like that happens. People get jumped sometimes and beaten up, and it's just one of those things that happen. But sure. in this movie, it seems particularly strange for a Well, director. and it's also just the way it's filmed, right? Again, we've been talking about visual language. He has a way of presenting things, and this menacing car just doing donuts in the street for yeah. no reason, it's so set up. It's so... Um, like a shark circling its prey. It's so dramatic that... And they have, like, these crazy names, too, right? They right. come out, these these punks come out, and they're older, too. They're not even punks. No, I was like going to say, guys. they're hockey fans. These are yeah. hockey fans. Yeah, and older they're out they, 40-something they, hockey fans. And they're like, we're looking for a rumble. A rumble is what they say. And that, that they, they have these kind of nicknames that they give themselves, and he's like, Philippe is very confused. He's like, what? He's like, yeah, you're looking for a rumble? And then they just beat him into a coma. I think his actual response is, uh, I'd rather not, or something like that. <laughs> well. <laughs> Which is pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, and then they beat him. Yeah, senseless. And so, um, to some extent, her being willing to violate his very humanity for this thing feels like a mean joke. It, it, in the way that uh, I don't know that this isn't a criticism of the sort of romantic movie this could have been. Hmm. You know, that, that in some way this is... Either this is a very tone-deaf ending, which is possible, you know? Like, just because I like this man's other films doesn't mean he's perfect. You know what I mean? Like, maybe this was a mistake, and I'm willing to accept that. My inclination is that it's not a mistake, that the whole thing is criticizing it. And, in fact, that's partly maybe what makes this this character, Philippe, who really is, like, uh, uh, you know proto incel type of dude uh (laughs) that like what makes him so tolerable is that the film is actually kind of like messing with him the whole time like really pushing him a little bit and she's pushing him um and so ending it with her like basically taking advantage of him is sort of like in a real life situation how their relationship would have ended you know um would be him taking advantage of her so you know, it's possible that that's not true, that, that I'm just reading that into the film. But as it ended, that's all I could think about. Like, whether that was intentional or not, my brain was just like, this all played like kind of a mean joke, but not in a way where I'm mad about it, but in a way where I'm kind of laughing about it. I wonder how differently that ending played in 1998 compared to the year. No idea. No idea. Yeah. yeah. It's really hard to say. I mean, in the reviews I've read for it from, you know, the past 15, 20 years, uh, does that work out? Ninety-eight, yeah, twenty years. The last fifteen, twenty years. It. A lot of people they mention the ending, but they don't mention it as as if it was rape or if it was you know this this kind of horrible act. Uh, it, it, it. But then again, you know, most reviews don't mention the ending of the movie that they're talking about. It would be really interesting to hear from people who had seen it back then and what their response to that ending was. It does kind of. It's not that it. it uh, changed my feelings about the movie as a whole, but it did make me kind of reflect back on that relationship up to that point and whether I really felt like that was where it could possibly have went. But then that act of violence seems to come out of so far out of left field that everything after that feels like it, it's kind of of, of strange and, and off kilter. I just think there's a there's a um, I mean you've been using the word surreal surreality, right? Um, 
I think you could even say ridiculousness. There's something ridiculous about mm. this film that part of me goes, it, there has to be a sense of humor to it all. There has to be a, a, a I don't want to say goofy, but a, but a performative uh, unreality that is very self-aware in what it's doing. And that's the only way the movie works for me is, is, is that, I mean, not that it isn't charming and interesting and the performances aren't great. Everything about the movie kind of works, but when you add up all the pieces, including the piece of the ending, it pushes it over into, I think this is a self-aware thing that is being critical of a certain kind of assumption about romance and love and all right. that stuff. Mm. And, and, and it's sort of uh, kind of in a mean way questioning it. And, and that makes the movie for my taste, more charming far more charming actually interesting and so uh uh, i very much appreciate that again not that if this wasn't the sappiest bullshit that it wouldn't win me over it (laughs) probably it probably would because i can be very sappy but the only thing i enjoy more than sappiness is mean hot takes on sappiness those are even better like just hurt me just hurt me for wanting this thing to be romantic like i just want you to punish my little heart for wanting something so stupid and and pat and so um i i think that's what is going on here again i'm reading that into it i don't know we haven't heard we haven't watched the the uh director's commentary or anything uh but maybe i will just to see if, if that makes sense either way if if, it, if i'm wrong and the movie just is ending on a note i don't understand i think i still like it is i just think it, it it's much stronger if it's more self-aware than that yeah i like i mean i like the movie quite a bit this is a movie that wouldn't be for everyone i mean it is not action-packed it is very slow and very deliberate and again if it's taking after those especially those early French New Wave films, which tend to be kind of, not necessarily slice of life, but that they um, they do, they are willing to push the limits of people's patience sometimes. And that this movie does that at times. But I, I really like these characters to the point where I like their interactions and that I wanted to see where it was going. And every time I thought that maybe I was losing my patience with it, something kind of strange would happen and something a little bit more visually interesting would happen and it would propel me forward and keep me engaged with it. So yeah, and this is a movie that I would still recommend. Mm. So I'd actually recommended it probably more than the film that we uh, we covered on the first episode of Forgotten Gems, uh, Thumbsucker. I almost said Jawbreaker. I see, I do get it confused. Well, I mean, you, you are pointing in that direction, but we have created here another podcast that ends in a question, Doug, and that is, is this Forgotten a fucking gem or not? Right? Isn't that how it works? Is this yeah, no, absolutely. Gem? And, and it sounds <laughs> like... The, the fucking it, is necessarily... But. Well, I just was referencing our other podcast. Um, <laughs> it... it it sounds like you're saying yes that this is this is a movie that it it seems is maybe not forgotten but certainly isn't talked about a lot that is in fact a gem. Do you feel that that is true? Well, the, the, the strange thing about this movie is, despite the fact that Denis Villeneuve is now a mainstream Hollywood director, huge, that, huge. I mean, like a huge director. I mean, even though uh, Blade Runner didn't get uh, wasn't a huge financial success, the fact that he made a critical darling that was a sequel to Blade Runner is one of the most impossible feats that I think that any director could do and has given me a lot of confidence in him, even though I actually haven't seen that movie yet. Um, but I mean, you know, confidence in his ability to pull off really difficult things. The fact that his first movie is not very commonly available at all. In fact, it, it for a very long time, this movie did not have a English subtitled version available to watch. You can rent this right now on iTunes for about two ninety nine. Uh, that's American, and I think that it's very worthwhile. Not only because you're going to see the beginnings 
of uh, now he made some short films. Actually, if you look into Denny Villeneuve's uh, background, he actually uh, was part of this reality television series in Quebec, where he, um, where where he, uh, it it's kind of this weird thing where I guess people shot footage and then it was turned into movies. And I actually don't know that much about it, but he became this kind of face of this reality series, and that led into a grant, I guess, for him to make a film for the National Film Board of Canada. So he made some short films there, and that led into him being able to make August thirty second on Earth. So in terms of that jump from making these short films to making a full, you know, satisfying feature film. This isn't a director that I necessarily would say was fully formed on his first movie, but this is a very confident movie. This is a movie that, you know, is not really like a film school type movie. So I I think in terms of seeing where a very well-regarded and well-loved director came from, this is a really fascinating piece, but I also think it works on its own right. So I'd love to see this get a little bit more renown and, and availability, but at the very least, hopefully people who are listening to this can check it out. Yeah, it's on iTunes right now. You know... On one hand, Blade Runner 2049, it it got a certain amount of pushback. I know a lot of people loved it, but I know a lot of people hated it. And so I can kind of see maybe some skepticism and, and maybe that people aren't as intensely going back to his catalog. On the other we hand... Should say, I should just interrupt you there, Liam, just because I was in the midst of that, even though I haven't seen the movie. I do know a lot of, a lot of the criticism regarding it had to do with its portrayal of women in it, I believe. So I, I wonder, you know, looking at that and looking at this movie, I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but I do remember that being kind of controversial at the time. I 100% um, don't remember that about the film per se. Like what 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 the exact criticism was or how that played out i i don't uh hugely remember those dynamics in the film what i was going to say is a friend of the show trey lawson wrote a piece about blade runner 2049 that is the most looked at thing on the cinepunks website of all time it continues to get somewhere between a thousand hits and three thousand hits a month (laughs) every month to this day why i guess because people are still confused about blade runner 2049 i don't know but uh even if it wasn't a massive box office smash it's still a movie people are watching and talking about which i think is even more interesting than if it had just been a big blockbuster and then it kind of went away so um I am a little surprised, at least in the circles that we run in on Twitter, I haven't seen people talking about this film, uh, or at least curious about uh, more early films from his career. Uh, however, it would be interesting, you know, I could picture some questions around both Sicario and Arrival uh, around gender, but but I don't think any of them, it would be that negative. But, you know, Blade Runner 2049, I just don't honestly remember, and maybe that's something that would change how we feel about August 32nd on Earth if we could re- revisit that subject. I'm not sure. Well, I mean, I my memory of some of other Denis Villeneuve's movies is that they're very male-oriented. And again, this is a movie about a relationship that is, you know, about unrequited love written by a man, even though it's from, much of the film is from the perspective of a woman. I think that's something to keep in mind when you're watching it, that there is, you know, there... <laughs> That 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 brings in a perspective that may not necessarily be reflective of everyone's reality. And you know, I think everyone's career should be seen as a whole, but also individually when it comes to filmmakers. I think just watching this movie in a void, separated from the the movies that he would make afterwards, it's still really interesting and still very worthwhile and still something that people should seek out. And I'd love to see it, you know, get a streaming home somewhere so people can check it out on a bit of a wider basis. 
I also would call this a gem. You never actually said it, but I'll say it. This is a gem. It it, uh, it is definitely forgotten. Um, uh, Liam, Liam, yeah, yeah, it's a gem. It's a gem. Thank you. Uh, this is definitely a gem. It's a fucking gem, actually. And uh, I think that um, <laughs> if if you like uh, this director's films, I think you should take a chance and see it. If you're someone who's skeptical, maybe all the movies we mentioned are movies that you did not enjoy, and you're not interested in in. Uh, uh, his upcoming Dune, then I would go ahead and say this might not work for you either. Then, um, but I know quite a few people who are excited about uh, uh, this director, and and I think they should make an effort to see this film. I would I would recommend it. All right, thanks so much for joining us here on Forgotten Gems uh, as part of the Cinema Smorgasbord family. We're so glad that uh, you took the time to listen. On the next episode, we'll be covering 1986's Scene of the Crime, directed by Andre uh, Tashin. 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 Uh, directed by Andre Tashin, uh, played the Cannes Film Festival uh, in the category for uh, Un Certain Regard. Regard. That's my French accent. I hope you like that. That's my French accent. It's better um, than how you pronounce Andre Tachin. I don't know how to say anything, Doug. Uh, thanks again for listening. Um, we ask that uh, if you are interested in the show, that you go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com, check out some of the other uh, features that we do. You can follow us on Twitter at, at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. You can follow cinepunks.com uh, on Twitter as well. That's uh, S-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. You can follow Doug on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-E-Y. Is that That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. Ah, two L's. You're being a goof, a goofy guy here with the. Uh, I was my, trying to do uh, it the way you say it, but in trying to copy your cadence, uh, I forgot how many L's it was. My bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also want to thank, of course, all of our supporters on Patreon who uh, have given to support the network. And uh, we promise soon we have a couple of fun ideas uh, for special Cinema Smorg episodes for the Patreon. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, and, of course, um, we hope that you'll go over to Cinepunks.com, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, and check out some of the other shows on the network. You know, check out Cinepunks, Har Business, Evil Eye, featuring Sam Deegan and Rob Scavarla covering goth and movies. Uh, you know, Tomb of Ideas, all kinds of fun podcasts over there. So go over and check it out. Um, hey Doug, uh, this is pretty good. This is pretty good, huh? <laughs> is this how you want to end things, Liam? Us just debating whether the show we just did was good or not? Yeah. <laughs> It's because it's got to be a yes. So, yeah, of course I do. Yeah, okay. All right, uh, uh, Oh, no. Let's talk about this briefly. So, uh, right before we started recording, we were talking about the fact that, you know, because we're talking about movies on Forgotten Gems that people might not have heard of or might not have any kind of uh, profile anymore. Sure. That people might, you know, look at the title of the movie that we're covering and be like, "Ah, I don't really care about that. Part of the fun of this for Liam and myself is that we're getting to see movies that otherwise we might not ever see or maybe aren't commonly available and that's why they are potentially gems we're not here to kind of uh, punch down at anybody necessarily we're here to see why these movies that at some point had this profile had some at some point were well regarded by critics that they just are not as discussed anymore and whether they're they're worthy of relitigation and worthy of discussion and that's why it's so fun for us and I hope you will join us on that uh, the discovery of the future. If there's a film that you think we should be discussing, we'll we'll take your submission. We'll probably ignore it, but we'll you know we're willing to humor you on some level. Go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. You can email us through the link there, or just uh, email us directly at info at cinemasmorgasbord.com. 
All right. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Stay healthy. Wash your hands. Talk to you later. Même en mes pivots